Happy Sabbath to everyone in these times where happiness is very elusive, uh, but God is with us. Thank you, Iana and Erin, for that music again as part of our worship and part of our study. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father Evan, we thank you so much that we are still alive and that we're beginning to understand even much more now the great distinction and uh, really the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world. And being that case, we pray that we shall make a conscious choice, an informed choice, intellectually and spiritually, to choose to be part of God's kingdom on earth. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are going to continue where we left off on the topic, the uh, theocracy in the old to the uh, kingdom of God in the new. But we trace the history and the transition that took place from the theocracy under Samuel uh, to the desire of the people to have a king or a monarch, a monarchy, a monarchical form of government. So I'm going to begin reading, and you have to finish this whole chapter. It's found in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 to 22. There are not too many verses, but I'm going to read only up to uh, verse 18. And it came to pass when Samuel was old, when Samuel was old, that he made his sons judges over Israel. Now the name, they're given, the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abiah. They were judges in Beersheba. And his sons walked not, his sons walked not in his ways, but they turned aside after the looker and took bribes, and they perverted judgment. Then all the Israels of his, the elders of Israel gathered themselves together, and they came to Samuel and to Ramah, and they said to Samuel, Behold, thou art an old man, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Thou make us a king to rule us like all the nations. Verse 6 says, But the thing displeased Samuel, of course, when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And what did Samuel do? And Samuel prayed unto the Lord. Verse 7, And the Lord answered his prayer. The Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people in all that they say unto thee, for they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even unto this day wherewith they have forsaken me, they have served other gods, so they also do unto thee. Or do they also unto thee. So what they did to God in the beginning, they did to uh, his people and his leaders back then. And Samuel told all the words of the Lord unto the people that asked of him a king. And you should read this. Read the rest, because we will proceed with our study where we left off so we can make progress in understanding uh, the issues of the day, the real issues, not the side issues. You see, what happened here is that the cases of abuse among the people had not been referred to Samuel. His sons were abusive. Because had that evil course of his sons been made known to Samuel, he would have re removed them without delay. But this was not what the petitioners desired. Samuel saw that the real motive was discontent and pride, and their demand was the result of a deliberate and premeditated purpose, determined purpose. No complaint had been made against Samuel himself. All acknowledged the integrity and the wisdom of his administration, but the aged prophet looked upon the request as a censure upon himself. He took it on himself. And a direct effort to set him aside. His human tendencies. 
He did not, however, reveal his feelings. He uttered no reproach, but he carried the matter to the Lord in prayer and sought counsel from him alone. And let me just make an emphasis on this. Let all of us strive to do the same thing. And so we read, and the Lord said unto Samuel, verse Samuel 8, verse 7, Hearken to the voice of the people in all that they say unto thee, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me. See this in this changed over from a theocracy to a monarchy. It was actually in the rejection of God himself. So they have rejected me that I should not reign over them according to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even unto this day wherewith they have forsaken me and served other gods. Do they also unto thee. The prophet Samuel was actually reproved by God for grieving at the conduct of the people towards himself as an individual. But the truth is, the people, they had not manifested disrespect for Samuel, but for the authority of God, who had appointed the rulers for his people. Those who despise and reject the faithful servant of God show contempt not merely for the man, but for the master who sent him. It is God's words, his reproofs, his counsel that are set at naught. It is his authority that is actually rejected. Now, what was the ancient chosen people's promise? God's promise. They, it was conditional. We read that in Deuteronomy 4 verse 6. God said through Moses to his chosen people, This is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations, which shall hear of these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Remember, that was conditional. But by departing from God's law, the Hebrews had failed to become the people of God that he decided to make of them and then all the evils which were the result of their own sin and folly they charged upon the government of God so completely had they become blinded by sin and so the Lord had through his prophets foretold that Israel would be governed by a king but it does not follow that this form of government was the best for them, or according to his will, he permitted, he permitted the people to follow their own choice because they refused to be guided by his counsel. Now the prophet Hosea declares that God gave them a king in his anger. That's Hosea 13.11. God gave them a king in his anger. It was not his choice. And here it is, what it says here in the book. When men choose to follow their own way without seeking the counsel of God or in opposition to his revealed will, he often grants them their desires in order that 
through the bitter experiences that follow, they may be led to realize their folly and to repent of their sins. You see, human pride and wisdom will prove a dangerous guide. That which the heart desires, contrary to the will of God, will at the end be found a curse rather than a blessing. See, God desires His people, uh, that, those are the subjects of God's kingdom on earth, to look to Him alone and alone to Him as their lawgiver and as the source of their strength. Because feeling their dependence upon God, they would be constantly drawn nearer to Him. And what would be the result? They would become elevated and ennobled, fitted for the high destiny to which He had called them as His chosen people. Do you follow? But when a man was placed upon the throne instead of God, it would tend to turn the minds of the people from God. Then they would trust more to human strength and less to divine power. And the errors of the king, as the monarchy, would lead them into sin and separate the nation from God. Now, you see, we hear about what it says in the Bible as matters of principle, like king, like kingdom, like leader, like nation. It's actually following those principles that are enunciated, like mother, like daughter, like father, like son, like priest, like people. And, well, by their fruits you shall know them. And as they say, the apple does not fall far from the tree. Now read the whole chapter, for Samuel chapter 8. Samuel was instructed to grant the request of the people, but also to warn them of the Lord's disapproval, and also to make known what would be the result of their course. And so Samuel told them the words of God, all the words of the Lord unto the people that asked of him a king. He faithfully set before them the burdens that would be laid upon them and showed the contrast between such a state of oppression by their choice and their king and their present comparatively free and prosperous condition. Nothing was hidden from them. He says that their king would imitate the pomp and luxury of other monarchs, the hidden nations around them, the support which ah, grievous exactions upon their persons and property would be absolutely necessary. He called that taxes. The goodliest of their young men would he require for his service. They would be made charioteers and horsemen and runners before him. They must fill the ranks of his army. They would be required to till his fields and to reap his harvests, and to manufacture implements of war for his service. Then the daughters of Israel would be taken for confectioners, bakers, cooks, and bakers of that royal household, and to support his kingly state. 
He would seize upon the best of their lands bestowed upon the people by Jehovah himself. Eminent domain. And the most valuable of their servants also and their cattle he would take and put them to his own work. And besides all this, the king would require a tenth of all their income, the profits of their labor, or the products of their soil. You shall be his servants, concluded the prophet. And you shall, and watch this in 1 Samuel 8.18. Look at forward information, forward. It says, and you shall cry out in that day because of your king, in which you shall have chosen you, not your choice. And here's the sad thing. And the Lord will not hear you in that day. 1 Samuel 8, 8, 18. You see, however burdensome, its exaction should be found when once a monarchy was established, they could not set it aside at pleasure. It was already there. But what was the reply of the people? The people answered, Nay, but we will have a king over us, that we may also be like all nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. First Samuel 8.20, you should read the rest. Look at that thing. Look at what they said. Like all nations. Those Israelites did not realize that to be in this respect unlike other nations was actually a special privilege and blessing. Why? God had separated the Israelites from every other people to make them his own peculiar treasure, as he told Moses. But they, disregarding this high honor, eagerly desired to imitate the example of the heathen nations. Well, here's an important thing we should remember as we move forward. This is exactly how the early Christian church, which is the modern spiritual Israel, began to fall away from their original apostolic purity and simplicity by compromising in the name of charity, love, and unity, that's what you call ecumenism, with the heathen and the pagan religions of their time, so that the Christian church fell into the prophesied great apostasy in its Pergamos then Thyatira, third and fourth stages respectively, which by the sixth century, the universal Romish church and papal Rome came into power. Now, what is the warning? against the Christian world or mainstream today. There is a warning here. The longing to conform to worldly practices and customs exists among the people of God. And as they depart from the Lord, they become ambitious for the gains and the honors of the world. Christians are constantly seeking to imitate the practices of those who worship the God of this world. Many urge that by uniting with worldlings and conforming to their customs, they might exert a stronger influence over the ungodly. You would think. 
No, but that's exactly the, the bane and the curse of what has happened. And you see that in very practical uh, application in the lives of people you know. But here's the warning of God. But all who pursue this course are separating from the source of their strength. And thus becoming the friends of the world. They become the enemies of God. Now I'm going to read a couple of verses. Okay, It is written of the Holy Scriptures. It's not my own words. I dare not. Friends of the world become enemies of God. On the other hand, friends of God become the enemies of the world. Members of the kingdom of this world, specifically kingdoms and nations where state religions control the conscience of the people and suppress and persecute those whose faith is not of the prevailing national religion, cannot be members of God's kingdom. Here on earth, neither of the glorious kingdom that is to come. How does this change, by the way? We must accept Christ's invitation that he extended to his first 12 disciples. Come after me. And to expand that, according to the scriptures, he says to come out of the world and be separate. Separate from what? From the darkness of ignorance, gross doctrinal errors resulting in modern-day spiritual Babylonian confusion because it is an amalgamation of man-made commandments, the sayings of man with fables and traditions and superstitions that really originated from the earliest forms of pagan idolatry and witchcraft and spiritualism being among the many forms of the worship of the God of this world and the many other gods of heathen and pagan religions who mingled immorality, feasting, surfeiting, gross indulgence in the delights of the flesh and of the pleasing of the eye, such as Bacchanalia, you've heard about Bacchanalia, and the Saturnalia festivals in Rome, which modern counterparts may be found it, today. It may be found in, whoa, the temporal, corruptible, perishable things of which we love. We love these things, and because of these things, we are suffering hypocrisy and double-dealing and duplicity and injustice and prejudice and partiality and favoritism and a despicable hatred for all that the Bible calls holy and righteousness. Yet, they have the form of godliness but deny the power thereof. The vain imaginations, the narcissistic self-promotion, self-centered, even self-pitying self-worship displayed in pomp and glory of those with wealth and power and are in power must often, most often, is derived through fraud, deception, and from taking advantage of the ignorant and the uneducated oppressing the less fortunate and downtrodden of human society, of the downtrodden of earthly kingdoms and apostate and hidden religions and of sin, the number one thing, which is the root cause of all the maladies of mankind since the fall in Eden in all its enticing and deceptive forms, the spirit of compromise and, and the idea of relativity. There's nothing absolute. For all of this, 
may be found in the kingdoms of this world. We need to come out of that. Now, there are just two passages of Scripture that explains all this. There are many of them. James 4, verse 4 is very clear. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. James 4, verse 4, King James Version. First John, chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, if any man love the world, and of course the things of the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Verse 16 says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. Verse 17 says, And beware, the world passeth away, and the last thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Now back to our reading on the spirit of prophecy. For the sake of earthly distinction, they sacrifice the unspeakable honor to which God has called them, that's chosen, of showing forth the praises of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're quoting from 1 Peter 2, verse 9. And so back to Samuel, with deep sadness, Samuel listened to the words of the people. But the Lord said unto him, Samuel, hearken, listen to the voice, make them a king. Prophet had done his duty. He had faithfully presented the warning, and it had been rejected. Note this. Right? All of us here, all who are called, chosen, and ordained as his ministers for his last days, proclaiming the anti-typical Elijah and John the Baptist messages given in the three angels' messages of Revelation 14, take heart, be comforted, and encouraged. Like Samuel, he did his duty. Even with a heavy heart, Samuel dismissed the people, and he himself departed to prepare for the great change in the government. Now here's some closing points I'd like to emphasize from the book. Samuel's life of purity and unselfish devotion was a perpetual rebuke, both to self-serving priests and elders and to the proud sensual congregation of Israel. But although he assumed no pomp, no display, his labors or his works bore the signet of heaven. He was honored by the world's Redeemer, under whose guidance he ruled the Hebrew nation. Uh, it was a prophet that ruled, as a the ruled the theocracy, but the people, Remember the term vox populi? But the people had become weary of his piety and his devotion. They despised his humble authority. And they rejected him for a man who should rule them as a king. 
Friends, in the, chap in the character of Samuel, we see reflected the likeness of Christ. It was the purity of our Savior's life that provoked the wrath of Satan. That life was the light of the world and revealed the hidden depravity of the hearts of men. It was the holiness of Christ that stirred up against him the fiercest passions of false-hearted professors of godliness. Christ came not with the wealth and honors of this earth, yet the works which he wrought showed him to possess power greater than any human prince ever. The Jews looked for a Messiah to break the Roman oppressor's yoke. Yet they cherished the very sins that had bound it upon their necks. That was actually the heaviest yoke to bear. Had Christ cloaked their sins and applauded their piety, the fake one, they would have accepted him as their king. But they would bear his they couldn't bear his fearless rebuke of their vices. That's given in Matthew 23 and other parts of the Gospels. Now question, question. Who were and are Christ's own chosen ones that would make up his own kingdom on earth in contrast to all the other earthly kingdoms? According to Christ's words. You'll read it, okay? Well, here is what Jesus revealed to his first 12 disciples. His own chosen ones. In John chapter 15, verses 16 to 23. And we will go through that. Okay, Verse 16 says, Jesus said to his disciples, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. Watch these words about the chosen ones. I have chosen you and ordained you. John 15, verse 16. That you should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Verse 17, These things I command you, that you love one another. That is, if we are really his chosen ones, this is a command, members of his kingdom. Verse 18, verse 18 says, If the world hate you, and you know, you will know that it hated me before it hated you, Verse 19, if you were of the world, and of course the kingdoms of this world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world and the world's kingdoms, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Verse 20, word remember. You won't forget this because the fourth commandment says remember. But he says, remember the word that I said to you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, and he said, my kingdom is not of this world, they would also keep yours. Verse 20, among says, but all these things they will do unto you as members of my kingdom. That's what's implied there. For my name's sake, because they knew not him or rejected him that sent me. Verse 22, Ah, oh, here it is, friends. If I had not come and spoken unto them, 
That's the religious leaders and the people themselves. They had not had sin, but now they have no cloak for their sins. Verse 23, He that hateth me hateth my father also. Now back to what we're reading here from Spirit of Prophecy on Samuel's character, which imaged the character of God in contrast to the character of Saul, whom the Israelites preferred over God, showing us the corrupt, intrinsic nature of the kingdoms of this world and the corrupted choices of the tastes of the people who expressed their will against God and called it Vox Populi, Vox Dei. See, it says here in the book, the loveliness of a character in which benevolence, purity, and holiness reigned supreme, which entertained no hatred except for sin, the people despised that. And thus it has been in every age of the world. The light from heaven brings condemnation on all who refuse to walk in it when rebuked by the example of those who hate sin. That's the real chosen ones, by the way, of God's kingdom on earth. Hypocrites will become agents of Satan to harass and persecute the faithful. Indeed, we read in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 12, All that will live godly in Christ shall suffer persecution. Thus it has been in every age of the world. Light from heaven brings condemnation on all who refuse to walk in it. When rebuked by the example of those who hate sin, that's the real chosen ones of God, members of his kingdom on earth, what will happen? Hypocrites will become agents of Satan to harass and persecute the faithful. For all that will live godly in Christ shall suffer persecution. Second Thessalonians 3 verse 12. Now, though a monarchical form of government for Israel had been foretold, now watch this, the word foretold is not the same as preordained or predestined. It's foretold. Though it had been foretold for Israel in prophecy, God had reserved to himself the right to choose their king. So up to that point, the Hebrews so far respected the authority of God as to leave the selection entirely to him. And we know what happened. The choice fell upon Saul, the son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin. But the personal qualities of that future monarch were such as to gratify, see, the desire, gratify the pride of the heart, which prompted the desire for a king. Oh, we read what the Bible says about Saul. There was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he. First Samuel 9 verse 2. He was of a noble and dignified bearing in the prime of life. Handsome, comely, and tall. He appeared like one born to command. Yet, with all these external attractions, Saul was destitute of those higher qualities that constitute true wisdom. 
He had not in youth learned to control his rash, impetuous passions. He had never felt the renewing power of divine grace. Indeed, we read in 1 Samuel 16, 7, uh, this was when he was looking for a replacement for Saul. Um, the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. He was referring to Eliah, the first of the seven sons of Jesse, and the last one was David. Because man looketh on the outward appearance, but God looketh upon the heart. That brings us right up to Luke 16, verses 20 and 21. When Jesus was asked by the Pharisee, when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. Luke 16, 20 and 21. And here is this closing verse that's so appropriate to this section. John 3, 17, 21. John chapter 3, 17 to 21. For God sent not his Son to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Verse 18. He that believeth on him shall not be condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Verse 19. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than the light, because their deeds are evil. Verse 20, For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, lest his deeds be reproved. And verse 21, But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds or works may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. Let's pray once more. Our Father in heaven, holy and reverend is your name. This title exclusively belongs to you and to you alone. May your kingdom come and your will be done and be established in our hearts and minds and thoughts and choices and actions and decisions actually in our lives may this be accomplished that we may be actually the subjects of your kingdom on earth this we ask in the name of the only the only name under heaven by which man can be saved jesus christ amen